You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everybody, it is Jean Chatsky, and if you're a parent, even if you're a parent of just a newborn, then you know kids are not cheap. This year's Department of Agriculture data, and just wait for these numbers, people, it says that a middle-income married couple with two kids is expected to spend around a quarter million dollars to raise one child born in 2015. And that does not, by the way, include college. I mean, those numbers are just astonishing. I remember I used to do stories about these numbers when they would come out when I was reporting for Smart Money and then Money, and they always started with a one. I, I don't know when the page flipped and they started with a two, but yes, they like the cost of college, which can equal that if you go to private school, just go up and up and up. And what about if you are a parent of a child with special needs, a parent of a child with autism, for example? Well, one study estimates that the lifetime costs of treating and caring for an individual with autism can range from one and a half to two and a half million dollars, depending on intellectual level of disability or ability, and some reports say even higher. So this week we are diving in. We are speaking with somebody who is experiencing these costs, this scenario firsthand. Um, She also happens to be just a lovely person and a pleasure to spend time with. Yeah. Yeah, And she'll agree with that. We are with Judith (laughs) Newman. And Judith is the author of To Siri with Love, A Mother, Her Autistic Son, and The Kindness of Machines, which is a collection of touching and surprisingly often very funny stories about life with a 13-year-old boy with autism. Now, you wrote it when he was 13, Judith. Welcome, by the way. I did. Thank you. And he just turned 16. But I have to say that $250,000 figure sounds like, where do I get that bargain basement child? That seems cheap to me, even for a neurotypical kid. But of course, that's what happens when you live in Manhattan. Uh, living in Manhattan, you got to <laughs> skew the numbers up. <laughs> Judith has had quite a career in journalism, writing for the New York Times and Vanity Fair and Prevention and ARP and National Geographic. And you may have read her column, Help Desk, in the New York Times. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. To Siri with Love was inspired by an article that you wrote for the New York Times, which went viral. It did. So it was about your son, Gus, and his relationship literally with Siri. Yes. And tell us about it. Well, it, it was interesting because one of the things about having a son like Gus, uh, although he's verbal, his communication is still really impaired. And so 
I didn't have very much of a sense of his inner life, even when he was 11 or 12 years old. Anyway, one day I was noodling around with Siri, and I saw some something that said that you could, uh, all of the different things you could do with Siri. And one of them was, if you asked her, what planes are flying above my head? She would tell you. She would tell you the altitude. She would tell you exactly what the flight was and so forth. And I sort of, muttering to myself out loud, I said, why would anybody program this artificial intelligence to do that? Who needs to know that? And Gus, who just happened to be walking by and normally didn't respond to me, said, well, so you know who you're waving at, Mommy. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. So uh, he grabbed the phone from me and he started playing around with Siri himself. He was just fascinated that there was this creature to him that would endlessly answer his questions and endlessly talk to him. And one thing I've said over time, kids who are on the spectrum in particular have a kind of, I don't want to say that they think machines have souls exactly, but they certainly have a special consideration for machines that you don't see all the time. And so that's, even while he knew in his head that Siri was not a person, he was willing to overlook that in a way and to make this artificial intelligence robot his buddy. So... Gus has autism spectrum disorder. For people out there, and I know the numbers are just astonishing in terms of how often children in our culture these days have autism or are on the spectrum. You know, I'm being really careful of my language here because... Don't, don't be, not for be, my sake. Well, and, and for your <laughs> sake and for the sake of our listeners. So I have a, I have a nephew um, mm-hmm. who has autism. He, like your son Gus, is a twin. Mm-hmm. I, I've been schooled to say has autism rather than is autistic, but should I slip and say is autistic at some point during this conversation? <laughs> I don't mean anything... I don't, I don't no. mean any harm by that. Can you just sort of explain, first of all, the spectrum, and secondly, this language barrier that yes. we've gotten ourselves I, into? I, I have many cranky opinions about this. But um, autism is, it, it, you talk about people being on the spectrum for a reason. It's because it is a spectrum of of disability from very minimal to profound. And it's safe to say that, that the commonality is problems with communication, and problems, not just verbal communication, but also with understanding and relating to other people. So that has many, many ramifications. It may be something like, you know, you see people who can't look you in the eye and you're wondering why and it seems odd. Well, a lot of autistic people don't want to look you in the eye because they can hear better. They can pay attention better to what you're saying if they're not looking you in the eye. And there are many reasons for that. But that's just one example. It's a communication disability and also sensory one to a great degree. The way that we experience light and sound for many autistic kids, and I will use autistic, is quite different. Now, the whole thing about language is fascinating to me because, you know, as a writer, I'm very cranky about being told how I need to refer to people. And there's a whole idea of person-first language. And essentially what that means is you say you don't want the person to be identified by their disabilities. So you wouldn't say autistic. You would say uh, a person who has autism. Many people in the community, including many autistic people, roll their eyes at this because autism is part of the identity of people. And 
that to deny that makes it sound like it's a terrible thing. In other words, would you say a person with Jewishness? Would you say, you know, that a, a person with left-handedness? No. You might say a person with cancer. Mm-hmm. You and wouldn't you wouldn't say, say a canceric person. Exactly. You wouldn't say a cancerous person. That That means something awful and different. So, my own feeling about this is that to say that someone is autistic, it just says what it is. My son cannot drop his autism as if it were a handbag. And I think that's okay. And I actually, pretty much all of the people I talk to on the spectrum feel that way. So I think you should say autistic and and feel free about it, or at least have that discussion with your brother. See what he says. I don't think my brother would mind necessarily, but I don't want to offend him if I don't have to. Right. I guess is my is my feeling. Like I wouldn't want to offend a left-handed person. I have to be one unnecessarily <laughs> if if there was language there that was going to sure. offend them. Sure. So Gus has a twin brother, Henry. Right, who is the, the the word neurotypical is what's commonly used. And yeah, he's he's just like a regular I often tell people that Gus is really the sweetest 16-year-old you'll ever met. And I, I feel very free to say that because his brother is a typical, obnoxious, difficult, <laughs> <laughs> but wonderful kid. But, you know, I, I often ask people when they're asking me delicately about Gus and how difficult it must be, I say, yes, but at the same time, if you have a 16-year-old, how many mothers of 16-year-olds can say that they have not, they have, their child has never said a nasty word to them ever? So uh, there are, with the enormous challenges and drawbacks, there's also a great deal of wonderful stuff. That's good to hear. We know, because we, we did a little research, so about a quarter of U.S. households these days have a family member with special needs. Not wow. just that's, yeah, that's surprising even to me. Not just autism, but right. you know, a, a variety of special needs, and that um, caring for that person may mean doing different things financially over the course of your lifetime. Right? Can you talk to us a little bit? And I'll just sort of back up and and say, you know, I feel like I've gotten a little bit of a taste of that in my own life. My son was born with a heart defect. Mm. Um, He's great. I mean, he's really fine. Mm -hmm. I don't imagine there will ever be a scenario where he qualifies for life insurance unless he gets it under some group plan with a big employer. And so I have planned for that um, because that's just one of those things that I've sort of looked into my future and have said, okay, this may be a need. It's and the worry and uncertainty you probably had at the beginning was enormous, not only about f- when you got over the fear about whether he was going to live, if that was part of a fear, then you have all of these other, well, to what degree is he going to be dependent? Right. And how long is that dependency going to last? Mm-hmm. And you have been dealing with this Gus's whole life. I have. And I often say to people, he's an adorable question mark because he's in that wide range of kids where you really don't know about how independent he will be, if he will be partially, if he will be completely. And there are certain things that as time goes on, I I know without a doubt. I know that his essential innocence isn't going to be gone by the time he's 18. (laughs) That I'm sure of. And when he talks about 
homeless people, his first, not first reaction in talking about them, but his first thing that he does is he empties his pockets. Well, they need the money, you know, that kind of thing. So that wonderfulness is also frightening when your child likes to pick up the phone and talk to telemarketers, for example, So, which, which he does with great regularity. And so you go, huh, how is he going to deal with having a credit card? Because he would just read that number off to anybody. Now he's 16. He's delayed. There may be a time when he's he's just beginning to get the idea that this may not be a good idea. But is that going to fully come through? So anyway, the whole idea of planning for your child's financial future is very, very fraught. And he's 16. So the first thing that happens, I think, with us is that we have to come to a reckoning with ourselves. It's one of the most emotional things to go, this person is not going to be ready by 18. I must get guardianship, which is really where I am now. Because uh, he's six, he's 16. He's 16. And, and in New York, you can't really apply for guardianship of somebody until they're like 17 and six months. But it's so clear to me that many of the decisions – actually, let's face it, I think my 18-year-old – I wish that, that, that this could be – kicked to 21, because I'm not sure that there are some 18-year-olds who are ready to make a lot of decisions anyway, but certainly Gus can't. So that's first in my list of things to do. And with guardianship comes uh, a lot of financial decisions and, and beginning of financial planning as well. How have you and your husband approached this together. How do you, well, I mean, I know I I do a lot of talking to women, not only through this show, but in general, when I meet them, I talk about money because I talk about money. And, um, and a lot of us don't talk to our spouses about these important life or financial matters. I mean, half the U.S. adults don't even have wills, and and a lot right. of parents don't even have wills. So, right. you know, we don't like to deal with this stuff. And your stuff is more complicated. It, it is, and I had to drag. My husband is uh, thirty years older than I am, so I had to, and I had to drag him kicking and screaming to get a will. So you can imagine, this is this is not a pleasant talk for us. I think he feels we have an unusual situation that I write about a lot. You know, we've been married 25 years. We've never lived together. Financially, we keep things separate. So this is not necessarily there's no particular. I mean, you know, there are probably reasons, but it's not like there is a reason. So much of the stuff I'm saying is not necessarily it won't won't pertain to people listening to the show. But the only thing we are on the same page about is that our son is going to, we have to prepare for eventualities. My husband's reaction is to this, well, I'll be dead, then you can deal with it. And that's very nice, right? <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I'm like, thanks. But he is 85, so there's a reality to this. So, so do you feel like it's all on you? Uh, yes, I do feel like it's all on me. I don't want to be too jolly about this. It's not fabulous. But listen, what's the alternative? The alternative is that I'm not here to deal with it. So if it's on me, it's on me. I have been making the preliminary plans. I've set up a supplemental needs trust, it's called, which uh, when I die, uh, money goes into it for him, that kind of thing. I want to actually talk about those plans a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the supplemental needs trust or the special needs trust. They're, Mm -hmm. They're different names for it. Before we dive into those details, let me just remind everybody that important 
important conversations like these are brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives because we all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Judith Newman. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest, most complicated events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or having a baby or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We're talking with Judith Newman. Her book is Too Siri with Love About Life with Gus, her son with autism, and Henry, his twin brother, who is neurotypical. That's mm-hmm. the word That's, that we're, yeah. we're using. Yep. And um, regular. <laughs> I'll regular, go with regular. A, a teenage boy. <laughs> talking about the steps that you have to take to plan. At what point did you say, we got to get a lawyer. We got to get some documents in place and we have to make some sort of a plan. Well, I only did this quite recently, about a year and a half ago. So when he was, uh, I don't know, maybe 14, actually, and I knew that there were things he had to do. If your child is in a good school for kids with special needs, you will have guidance and hand-holding. They can't do everything for you, but they can definitely uh, help you navigate the waters. And so much depends. It depends on your state, but it also depends on your child and what your child is going to need. I mean, the terrible thing in this country is that your kid turns 18 and you no longer have are entitled to anything. Really, it, it no, becomes, it's so true. Yeah, it, it is so true. I discovered this actually when I took my daughter to a doctor's appointment, and they basically said, "Okay, out, out oh, with you." How old you know? is she? You mean she, when she's I mean, she's eighteen. When she was eighteen, oh. you know, I I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to talk to her. And yes. when I would call to get records released or things that she could no longer do because she was off at college taking some sort of an exam, and she was just writing, "Mommy, can you please do this for me?" Yes, and the answer was actually. No, I can't. Right. And it's crazy. I mean, 18, well, it's a sign of perhaps how how we keep our kids' childhood going, maybe a little longer than we should. But there are tons of 18-year-olds who you really think to yourself, wow, why can't we be participating in, for example, their medical what's going on with them medically. I mean, I have, I write in the book about something that people do find very controversial, which is, do I want my son to have children? And I have to get guardianship because while I don't know this, I want him to have love and I want him to have a companion and I want him to have everything that everybody else has. I pray for that every day. But do I think that he should be taking care of kids? Not now. And I I can't imagine in two years I'll be thinking to myself, oh, yeah, well, if he happens to become a father, it'll be okay. No, it won't be okay. And so I need to have guardianship so that I know that if the time comes where he should have a vasectomy, I can make that happen. I know people are sometimes kind of horrified by that, but I think that if we're not thinking about things like that, uh, we're making a big mistake in our kids' lives. The other very complicating factor when you have a a special needs child who's qualifying for benefits, who's qualifying for social security income, is that they can't have too much money in their name. If they have more than $2,000 in their name, they could lose 
their benefits. Right. And so maneuvering that is the purpose of a special needs trust or a supplemental income trust, is that? Right, right. And this is something that I'm still trying to figure out. I know that I needed to uh, move anything, any money that he's been given, any money that I put in his name, I needed to get it out of his name. And then it becomes a question. And then my other son tortures me about this. He's like, so you're going to put it in my name and I'm going to take care of it, right? You know, mwahaha. <laughs> but, but I know that that has to happen. And then with the supplemental needs trust, well, when do you put money into that? The idea of this trust, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's for everything that the government does and supply the government at a certain point. And I actually think it's not when you're 18. It's more like when you're 21 will supply money for food and shelter food and shelter and some medical things. You know what? I'm, I'm, I don't want to stop you or correct you because I'm just not sure of the right. nuances I, either. Right. You, you can see that this is, you know, even for the, the mother of a, a child on the spectrum, this is a, there's a big learning curve here. But at any rate, the supplemental needs income is for everything above that. And you need this structure because it is it does not belong to your child, but it is for your child, and there's an essential legal difference here. It's for the benefit of your child. Right, right. How involved is your son, Henry, in all of this? And will you, will you, I, I mean, you asked me a question before we got on the air about my niece, and, and will she help take care of her brother? And I think she has every intention of mm-hmm. helping take care of her brother, and who knows where her life is going to go, which is why mm-hmm. parental planning is so important. But... So many, it seems, of these scenarios involve a twin or siblings. How do you decide how much to count on the other kids in the family? It's such a good question, and I tell Henry all the time, you know, well, I used to when he was younger. I was like, I'm waiting to see if you're a mensch. Are you going to be a good boy about this? And Because he, we have these ridiculous conversations where in this very exasperated tone of voice, he says to me, you know, you're going to have to leave me more than half the death money and so that I can take <laughs> care of Gus. And I'm like, you really have to start using a term other than death money. But thanks. I'm a, I know what you're talking about. It's sort of a joke between us. The truth is we were just having this conversation. We were, we were reading the Bible. We were actually reading Genesis because he wants to read the Bible so he can argue with people about it. Basically, and we're talking about the whole story. Am I Cain and Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? And mm-hmm. if you remember, Cain said it very sneeringly when it's, people were wondering where where Abel was, go, where he had gone. And we know that Cain had already killed Abel. But you know, am I my brother's keeper? And and it became a big discussion to us. Now, I know that a lot of people will disagree with me. But my attitude is everybody's got something, and if you've got a sibling. I think from the earliest time, you should go like, hey, you know, your brother is going to be a part of your life, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'll make sure that it's not an undue burden. But yeah, you might be the guy who has to manage certain things for him, and that's not the end of the world. That's what makes us human. I don't know how you feel about that, and I don't know how your your brother will feel about that. Look, we all—I mean, I have two brothers of my own— 
um, my father, my mother's good. My mother listens to the podcast regularly, and she's going to laugh when she hears this because I remember at the dinner table when I was growing up, and we moved town by town by town. So we, you know, we we were a unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father used to impose what he would call Rule Five Hundred and Thirty Seven, <laughs> which was that we, you know, you, you take care of your brothers, and they take care of you. And yes. and that is that's what you got. And I told my kids about themselves the same thing, to the point where you know they roll their eyes at me and they say, "I know, I know, I know. I you know I I got to take care of Julia and she's going to take care of me because that's all we have." Yes, and I I say that ad nauseum, and I believe it, and I, I may feel it even more. I'm an only child. I don't have a sibling, but I I I completely. Don't, I don't think this is a bad thing. I think this is what makes us decent human beings. In sort of wrapping things up here, knowing what you know now, if you were giving advice to a parent who's just discovering that her child or his child has special needs, what's the most helpful thing that you've learned along the way? I think it's a very good question, and I think that there's a a saying in the autism community, um, well, there are a couple of sayings. Uh, One is, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Don't generalize about the child. And also, the phrase, delay doesn't mean never. And you simply don't know what's going to happen if you find out that your child is on the spectrum. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that you should be saying yippee. But your child will change differently than other children. There's a different pattern of development. But for many, many kids, the amount of change is really quite remarkable. And if you're looking at your child at five, you have no clue what that child is going to be like at 15. So don't make projections in that way. Again, I don't want to be a Pollyanna, but you will have joys and you will be changed in ways that I don't even want to give a big lecture about this because who knows, it's different for everybody. But I was one kind of person before I had Gus, and now I'm a different kind of person. Maybe not all in great ways, but in certain ways, uh, I'm a little nicer. I'm a little more patient. Not a lot more patient. That's not true. But You're a New Yorker. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker, right. <laughs> Judith Newman, the book is To Siri with Love. Do you have a couple of copies we could give away to our listeners? Oh, absolutely. People love to tweet us or send us emails that they want to be the first in line for the book. So we'll give away a couple of signed copies. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll be right back. We are back in the studio. Kelly has joined me. Hello. Hello. A little bit of housekeeping. I have been, over the past couple of months, in my travels, sitting down with some groups of Her Money listeners, wonderful women, and just talking about our money. It's important for us to do because it informs the kind of shows that you want to listen to. It gives me a sense of what sort of issues are on your mind. And so here's my invitation to a Her Money happy hour. I will buy the first round of drinks. I am looking for a handful of women, maybe eight to 10, to meet me in both Nashville 
and in the Miami area. And so if you're in one of those areas and you like the idea of sitting down for a little cocktail and conversation with me, drop me a line. Send me a note at gene at genechatsky.com. Tell me where you're based. Tell me where you are. And I'll be in other cities. I'll keep you posted on where I'm going to be in the near future, and maybe we can do it in your neck of the woods as well. Okay, what do we have? Our first question is from Debbie. She writes, I love your podcast. Thank you, Debbie. I'm 57, and my husband is 62. We are planning on retiring in eight years. We have a combination of tax-advantaged retirement accounts and Roth IRAs. I'm learning about RMDs. RMDs, by the way, required minimum distributions. We'll explain them in a sec and considering strategies for lowering our taxes once we retire. Since our mortgage will be paid off, we won't have many deductions. Are there any books or resources you would recommend to help me learn about this phase of our financial lives? Yes and yes. (laughs) So um, first of all, great question. And it is something that people are dealing with more often these days since more and more people have money in Roth or Roth-like instruments. When you put money in a Roth, you've already paid the taxes. So when you pull the money out, you don't have to pay the taxes. When you take a required minimum distribution or any distribution from your 401k or other defined contribution plan, you have to pay income taxes on that money at your current rate. And you have to start taking the money at age 70 and a half. You can start taking the money at 59 and a half, but clearly they have not started to take it yet. But by the time they get to 70 and a half, the clock starts to run. So I would say sitting down with the financial advisor at this inflection point or to plan for this inflection point and to make a real roadmap of what money you're going to take from what account in what year is a really, really good idea because it gives you some idea of how to then invest the money that's in those accounts. You're going to want to make sure that you got a certain chunk of money sitting in cash so that you don't have to sell securities if the market takes a tumble at a low and pull that money out because you need to pay the electric bill. And so that's why I really love the idea of sitting down with an advisor and making a plan. As for books, the other big pool of money is Social Security. And you should be planning in concert with making these decisions about how and when to tap Social Security. There's a great book on this by Larry Kotlikoff, who is an economist in Boston. He also has a tool called MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com. The book is called Get What's Yours for Social Security. Larry is one of two authors. I apologize. I can't remember the other author's name. He also has a similar book for Medicare, so I would grab that as well. It seems like one big puzzle. It is a puzzle. That's exactly what it is. It's a puzzle where you're trying to figure out how to get this complicated tax code that is, by the way, changing around us Mm -hmm. as we speak to work in your favor. All right. Well, thank you for writing in, Debbie. Our next question is from Wendy, who says, for the first time in her adult life at age 43, she's finally debt-free. Woohoo! Woohoo, Wendy, she writes. I was your classic case of accumulating credit card debt in college. Since having paid off my debt, my once exceptional FICO score has gone down significantly. I did close two credit card accounts, but still have three open. What can I do to improve this score? That's odd. Um, 
So my suspicion, Wendy, and first of all, I care so much more about the fact that you are now debt-free than I care about the FICO score. So exciting. The FICO score, the credit score, matters when you go to borrow money in the future. And so we want to get it back up in case you want to buy a house, in case you want to get a mortgage. My guess is that those two credit card accounts that you closed represented the lion's share of your available credit. So if you had five credit cards, which is what it sounds like, and two of them had $10,000 lines of credit, and the other three that remain open had $2,000 lines of credit, you just wiped out your available lines of credit. And that means if you're still using those three cards, you are overusing your available credit. It's Your utilization ratio has taken a turn for the worse. I would suggest a couple of things. Look at those three cards that you still have open. If they are not store credit cards, but rather major bank credit cards, give them a call and ask them to increase your line of credit and then don't use it. Essentially, you're just giving yourself a bigger pool of credit, which now that you know how to handle it should not be a problem. If you believe, though, that you can't handle that, that you will just slide on down the slippery slope, don't do anything. Um, Try to use your credit cards less than you're using them now and use your debit card more. And this should write itself within six to 12 months. And if it doesn't, send me another note and I'll dig into it with the FICO people and try to get you a more specific answer. And maybe pull your credit reports to make sure everything's right there. Oh, absolutely. That's that's always a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Pull your credit reports and make sure that nobody else's information is ending up in your file. That could also impact it negatively. Right. Okay. Well, congratulations again, Wendy. And we have one more from Paula. I'm retired now at 66. How much of my retirement should be in cash, stocks, etc.? What type of stock funds, ETFs do you recommend in retirement? Okay. So <laughs> this is this is a big question, Paula. And I'm going to give you an answer, but is the kind of question that you are best off answering with full knowledge of your goals for the future. You know, what do you need this money to be doing for you? How much of that money do you need to be using right now? The goal needs to be that that money at age 66 lasts you another 30 years, which means it should be invested in a way that it does grow, but that you have some security and that perhaps you can pull no more than 4% of it out every single year because that's the math on making the money last. As far as how much should be in cash, stocks, etc., you know, at 66, you probably don't want any more than 40%, maybe even 30% in stocks with the rest split between bonds and cash. I am a fan of low-cost investments. So ETFs, exchange-traded funds, yes, fall into that bucket, diversified ones, um, broad stock and bond diversified index funds or ETFs are the way to go. I mean, you and I've talked about this before, mm-hmm. Kelly. I like boring investments. Yes. Boring is better. So broad 
diversified stock bond and international funds will really do the trick for me. But as I said to Debbie, if you haven't sat down with an actual person to make a plan that works for you based on your age and your goals and your risk tolerance and your asset base, it's an absolute must. So I would say go ahead and do that. And these were great questions. So thank you so much for asking them. Remember, we always want to answer whatever's on your mind. So reach out to us on Twitter, on Facebook, and especially at jeanchatsky.com. And while you're corresponding with us, remember, we have two books from Judith Newman to Siri with Love. So if you're interested in reading one of those, drop us a line. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. In this week's Thrive, I would like to help you all say goodbye to bank fees. Not like you needed another reason to avoid paying ATM fees, but the average cost of using an out-of-network machine, according to some new research from Bankrate, is now $4.69. That is just incredible, and that's not the only cost that's on the rise. Overdraft fees are up 1%. They now average $33.38. The good news about both of these fees is that you can avoid them. All right, here's how you do that. First, if there is no ATM in sight, at least none that belongs to your bank, your network, then duck into a grocery store or a drugstore, buy something small that you needed to buy anyway using your debit card and get some cash back. Second, when it comes to those overdraft fees, you should know that people who overdraw, they don't just do it once. They tend to do it on average about once a month. That gets really expensive over the course of a year. So set up daily balance alerts on your financial institution's website. They usually will send them out via text or email. And turn off overdraft protection altogether so that your card will be declined in case of insufficient funds. I personally think one moment of embarrassment at the cash register is worth saving more than $30, but that is just me. And if you do end up with an overdraft, give your bank a call and ask for the fee to be waived. Usually they'll do this for free about once a year. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks for your questions. And while you're corresponding with us, remember we have two books from Judith Newman to Siri with Love. So if you're interested in reading one of those, drop us a line. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes and leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.